When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. And as this is a special episode, part of our uh, Seat at the Table series, I'm joined by a special guest. Our special guest today is Bree from Pontifax. Hi, Bree. Hello, Jerry. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today as we explore the life and career of another cabinet member. But before we get started, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners a little bit about Pontifex. I know that we have quite a few folks who follow both of our shows, but for anybody who may not have discovered Pontifex yet, and believe me, you need Pontifex in your life, <laughs> Bree is going to tell you a little bit about their podcast. Okay, well, I run a papal history podcast called Pontifax. We are going through all of the popes from Peter to Francis, and then we are rating them on our own series of incredibly subjective and very, very important categories. And at the end, we rank each pope to decide who is worthy of a papal bull. And these popes will then battle it out at the end to see if they can take the keys away from St. Peter's to the Heaven's Gate and be the popiest pope who ever poped. <laughs> I love it. And like I said, you need Pontifex in your life. If you haven't checked it out already, please do. It, it's an amazing journey through papal history, but also with some humor. And especially I know I have those days that I need a good laugh and I will turn on Pontifex. And it's almost like you're you're there with friends. So <laughs> oh, perfect. I love hearing that. because that's, <laughs> that's definitely what we go for. We're, we're not very serious at all. We're, we take a very um, human look at theology and church history without being too reverent. Absolutely. So check it out after we get done with this episode. But now we are about to explore the life and career of a cabinet member. And Bree does not know who we are talking about today. So I will share it with her as well as you. We are going to be exploring the life of Edmund Randolph. Now, do you know who Edmund Randolph is? Any? I don't. I don't have a clue. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I should preface this and say I'm from Canada. I know very, very little about American government and how it works. So the cabinet is a mystery to me, and I can't wait for you to explain it all. Well, let's get started at the very beginning. So Edmund Randolph was born on August 10th, 1753. He was the son of John and Ariana Randolph of Williamsburg, Virginia. So the Randolph family is one of those families is one of the most prominent families in the colony of Virginia. So, you know, he was born into this well-to-do family. The family had actually been in Virginia since 1643 and had with each generation risen in political prominence. Edmund's grandfather was actually the only colonial Virginian to be knighted. 
So wow. Just to give you a sense of how prominent this family was, his father, John Randolph, was a prominent attorney in the colony, and he was actually named as King's Attorney, which was basically the equivalent of the Colonial Attorney General. And it was the same office that John Randolph's brother and grandfather had served previously. So again, this is a very well-to-do, well-connected family. Being from Virginia, of course, the Randolph family was involved in slaveholding, and that was part of their wealth, was in enslaved individuals. As we go through, we're going to come back to that time and again, because that is, of course, unfortunately, a part of American history that we have to discuss. But getting back to Edmund. Edmund's biographer, John J. Reardon, described his early life as carefree, which you would expect being from a prominent family. And Reardon noted how the fact that Randolph was born and raised in the seat of government for colonial Virginia impacted the course of his life. So here Mm -hmm. he is in this prominent family, in this well-connected family, in the seat of power in Virginia. So that's really going to play a part in the later part of his career. Like many Virginia aristocrats, he went to the College of William and Mary, and then he read law with his father, John, and his uncle, Payton. Now, Payton was the speaker of the colonial House of Burgesses starting in 1766. And so this meant that he and, by extension, the family were well involved in the events of the time, which, as our listeners may know, We had growing tensions between the colonies and the British government, and the Randolph family would actually find themselves split on the issues. Yes. So Peyton Randolph was really on the side of the discontent colonist. He was more on the side of, we need some reforms by the British government. We're being oppressed. He actually chaired meetings of the first Virginia convention and was named as president of the Second Virginia Convention before being named as a delegate to both the First and the Second Continental Congresses. And he actually served for a brief time as president of both of those bodies. So, again, just to get a sense of how prominent this family is, you know, as the colonies are starting to come together, here he is, Peyton Randolph, in this prominent position in the eastern seaboard. Yeah. They have all the connections. Exactly. And constantly building more as as this goes on. But the thing was, Edmund's father, John Randolph, was a loyalist. Mm. And he worked to try and work out a compromise between the royal governor and the colonial house of Burgesses. So he was trying to find some way that, you know, while his brother was kind of this rabble rouser, he was the one trying to, okay, we've got this establishment. We, we really don't need to throw everything away. Let's, let's figure out what we can do. That sounds like a typical brother relationship. Exactly. <laughs> and in the typical kind of father-son relationship, Edmund didn't agree with his father. Of course. He, he actually sided with his uncle. And he wanted to support the Patriot cause. So Edmund actually joined the Continental Army. So he's really going out there in his support of the Patriot cause. And when he joined the Continental Army, again, prominent Virginia family. So because of that, he ended up being named as an aide de camp for General Washington. Minor figure in American history. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So 
Within a couple of weeks of Edmund joining Washington staff, his father and their family, so his father, mother, siblings, departed from Williamsburg to move back to Britain. So That's a big statement. Yes, that is a big statement. And you know, it's it's I don't think we really get a sense of the revolutionary war in the American Revolution as dividing families, but we see this in the Randolph family. You know, you have you have one side of the family that is going back to Britain and you've got the other side who is signing up for the Continental Congress to serve in the army. It was that divide for some families. But Edmund's time serving under Washington wouldn't last long because in October 1775, he was called back to Virginia. His uncle, Peyton Randolph, passed away. And so with his father in Britain, it was up to Edmund to come and kind of settle his uncle's estate. So he had to go ahead and say, you know, General Washington, I'm sorry, I've got to handle some family business. And he wouldn't go back to the Continental Army. His tenure in the Army was very short. But as his military career was wrapping up very rapidly, his political career was just beginning. Because he was first named to the Court of Admiralty, and then he was elected as a representative to the Virginia Convention. Naturally, being a Randolph, they... Yeah. yeah, He's going to take over for his uncle in all of the prominence positions. Exactly. And so then he also followed the family tradition and became the first attorney general of the state of Virginia. So as the state's transitioning to become its own entity, he becomes the first state attorney general. He was also elected as mayor of Williamsburg, which was another post that his father had held. So, again, following in that family tradition. On both sides. Exactly. So, early on in the revolution, you know, he he wasn't just, you know, collecting offices. He would also begin his life as a family man around that time. He married Elizabeth Nicholas, who was the daughter of the former colonial treasurer. And they married on August 29th, 1776. Now, fun fact that I found out while researching this, Edmund and Elizabeth were actually born within 12 hours of each other in the <laughs> same year, and both were born in Williamsburg. So, <laughs> Both born in August, married in August. Everything is happening for him in August. <laughs> Everything's happening in August, and you know, I, I guess it made it easy to remember each other's birthdays <laughs> being born so close. And ages, too. So the two would actually go on to have six children. And from everything I read, it sounds like that they had a a good relationship. But, of course, Randolph, being a Randolph, would continue to accumulate posts. He served on the board of governors of his alma mater, William & Mary. And then he became the clerk of the Virginia House of Delegates. So 1779 rolls around, and Randolph was named as a delegate to the Continental Congress. Now, you notice I've mentioned quite a few offices, and mm-hmm. I haven't mentioned him leaving offices. <laughs> I've been writing them down, and the list is getting quite long. <laughs> so at that time, you know, we think nowadays when you're in an office, you don't need to hold multiple other offices. It wasn't necessarily the case back in those days. And just to show you how little there was for the state attorney general to do at the time, Though Randolph gave up his clerkship, so he finally, he, he actually gave up an office. He remained the state's attorney general 
even though he was serving in Congress in Philadelphia. Was he still the mayor? I think he was still the mayor. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Workaholic. Yeah. Or or just really didn't have much to do. (laughs) (laughs) Those those babies can kiss themselves back in Williamsburg while I'm gone. (laughs) It'll be fine. But he didn't last long in Congress. He actually resigned in October to return to Virginia. And he moved his family to the new state capital of Richmond. So at that point, I believe he did give up the the mayorship of Williamsburg. But but the problem with moving to the new state capital was that the new state capital was a target for the British Army. So in spring 1780, the Randolphs had to evacuate when British General Lord Cornwallis and his forces marched on the capital. So this was a disruptive time for them and for many in the area. You know, you have British forces on the ground, but that didn't stop Randolph. He continued in his political career. He returned to the Continental Congress in June 1780. And though there were some frustrations with the work of the national legislature, Randolph was also able to gain some experience in a range of subjects because he served on a number of committees. And so this gave him experience you know, beyond the Virginia context, beyond what he knew in law, really started to give him an understanding of governance and all the, the different levels of it. Now, eight months into his new term in the Continental Congress, he again resigned from Congress. So he, he just wasn't <laughs> lasting in Congress that long. <laughs> And he returned to work as the state attorney general. That's right. He's still the state attorney general (laughs) through all of this. At least he's now setting down some responsibility. Clearly he has a preference. (laughs) You you can get a sense that he likes the the legal work. So he goes back to that. And with the end of the war and and part of it with the state being at war, courts weren't meeting like they usually would, there was a great deal of disruption. So that was part of the reason why there just really wasn't much for him to do. Mm -hmm. But with the end of the war, that work started to pick up. Courts started getting back into regular sessions. He started to actually have something to do in office. But he also had business to attend with in his personal life. His father was still back in Britain. He passed away. And his aunt, uh, who was Peyton Randolph's widow, she passed away as well. And so now he's got both of these estates because his father still had things going on in terms of business back in Virginia. So Edmund was the one who was sorting that out, sorting out his aunt's affairs. They also had to cope with the sudden death of their third child, who was a son oh. named John. Unfortunately, he passed away less than a year after his birth. So, oh. and unfortunately, child mortality was. One of those realities mm-hmm. at the time, children, if they live to adulthood, you know, it it, it was a miracle. Well, that's respects. why you have six children, because exactly. the likelihood of survival is so incredibly low. Exactly. But unfortunately, little John didn't make it. And so, you know, that was a blow for the family. But on a more positive note, so while dealing with these personal matters and, and having a great deal to do, Randolph's private law practice was starting to thrive. So he was starting to really have, and an, again, so I did mention he's still state attorney general and he has his <laughs> private law practice. 
that's not something that we're used to in the modern day. We would see that as possibly conflict, a conflict of, of interest. <laughs> but back in the day, they didn't. And we'll talk a little more about that as we go along. But Randolph was ultimately, you know, he continued with his public service. He was appointed as one of the five delegates to a convention that was scheduled to meet in Annapolis, Maryland in 1786. So this convention was brought together to consider matters of trade. So at the time, the United States was under the Articles of Confederation. It was a loose confederation of states. There were many issues that were coming up with trade between the states, with other nations. And so, and and Congress was proving not quite as adept to be able to meet those needs as many would hope. And so they brought together this convention to really talk through these issues, try and figure out a game plan to move things forward. Now, unfortunately, at this convention, only 12 delegates representing five states showed up. So (laughs) it's like, we really can't do anything right now, but... It's not very representative. Exactly. But they thought, you know, this really is important. We need to have another convention. We need to make sure that we can get everybody together. So they called for another convention to meet in May 1787 in Philadelphia. So now we know that as the Constitutional Convention, but at the time, they really didn't know what was going to happen. They -hmm. just knew we've got to solve these issues. The nation is falling apart. We've got some things that we need to work out. And so Randolph was one of those pushing for the what became the Constitutional Convention. (laughs) Now, before the second convention met, Randolph was elected by the Virginia State Legislature on November 7th, 1786, as governor of Virginia. At this point, the governor really had very few powers. When they had initially developed Virginia's state constitution, there was this fear of monarchy, of one person having too much power. And so they made the governor that position very weak. And Randolph really... Again, he was in one of those offices that he really didn't have that much to do. And so he was named a month after becoming governor as one of the delegates to the Philadelphia Convention. Was he still attorney general at this point, too? <laughs> I, I think I, I think they made him give that one up. But <laughs> he just wants to be busy. He, he wants to be busy and he keeps getting in these offices that there's not much to do. So. <laughs> So actually, most of the time, you know, for the next few months as governor was really focused on that convention. So even though they had named delegates to the convention, they had people dropping out, they had to find some alternates. So he spent a good amount of time trying to convince people to go to this convention to serve as delegates. It also fell on him to convince this this guy that they thought was kind of important to be there, George Washington. He spent a good amount of time trying to convince George Washington to attend. And basically, the reason that they felt Washington should attend was Washington was the national hero. Mm-hmm. We, I don't think that we can even fathom nowadays just how big of a personality, of an of a influence Washington was at the time. Everybody mm-hmm. knew Washington at a time that... We didn't have television. We didn't have social media. We didn't have movies. 
everybody knew Washington. And so they knew if this convention was going to accomplish something, we needed this guy in the room. Thankfully, and he was notoriously reticent to do that type of thing, to appear in those those positions and conferences, right? Exactly. And it's, it goes back to this idea of honor and knowing that your name, your, your reputation was all important to folks mm-hmm. at the time. And Washington was very reticent to get attached to this convention that may fail. Mm, okay. So this effort that may fail and it may, you know, diminish his name. It may diminish his, his glory. Randolph finally convinced him, you know, this is going to be <laughs> fine. We really need you. It, it is going to fail if you don't show up. So finally got him. It's a mark of your own honor. If you can get Washington to come, that will boost him up as the same exactly, time. Exactly. Exactly. And so finally he gets Washington to come. And on May, 1787, Randolph set off for Philadelphia. And of course, naturally, he didn't resign as governor. I mean, <laughs> why would the governor of Virginia need to actually be in Virginia to serve? You know, why? <laughs> what governing <laughs> needs to happen? You know, just just go ahead and, and pile everything on my desk. I'll get to it when I get back. So while serving in the convention, Randolph actually played a a pretty prominent role. Um, he was the person who initially introduced the Virginia plan and the Virginia plan called for a Congress that was representative by population. And so this was one of the key plans that ultimately with the New Jersey plan, which was more equal representation would ultimately come together to form, you know, what became Congress. And it actually, the Virginia plan came from James Madison but Madison wanted Randolph to introduce it again, the prominent Randolph. The influence. Exactly. So he played a key role in that. But even though he played this key role and he was friends with Madison, who was very much on board, we've got a, the Articles of Confederation are done. We need a new constitution. We need to push this forward. Despite all that, Randolph would ultimately be a critic of the new constitution. <laughs> He actually refused to sign the Constitution when it was finally drafted. Now, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, come on, guy, you've done all of this. You've contributed so much and especially getting George Washington there who did sign. And now you're going to say, no, no, I'm not going to do this. So, I'm getting a bit of a contrarian vibe from him. <laughs> yes. So he, his excuse was that he felt the Constitution would ultimately not be ratified. And thus, he didn't want to appear too closely aligned with it in order to allow him to kind of be free to work with others to figure out an alternate plan if the Constitution failed. So that was his excuse. But even his own biographer felt that he didn't sign for more personal reasons. And again, this gets back to this idea of name and prestige and not wanting to necessarily sign up with something that may be a failure. And so Randolph tried to take this neutral stance. Okay, I'm not going to support the Constitution. If it goes through, that's great. I'll be in support of it. I'm also open to figuring out something else. You've got to hedge your bets. You've got to hedge your bets. Randolph was all about hedging his bets. 
And just to show how much he was hedging his bets, he actually defended the Constitution during the Virginia Ratifying <laughs> Convention. Well, he saw which way the wind was blowing. He's like, great, now it's my time to jump on this bandwagon. Exactly. And reading about this, and I'm actually reading this book by Noah Feldman, which is about James Madison. But in it, I've learned a great deal about Edmund Randolph as well, since Randolph and Madison were pretty closely aligned. Randolph's lack of support for the Constitution did cause kind of a rift, but Madison really tried to, you know what, we're adults, we can disagree, we're still friends, we can still maintain a a friendship. But Part of what helped, you know, Madison was, of course, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention trying to get Randolph on board. You know, I know Mm -hmm. you had some issues with it, but this is really a good thing. Jump on board. It also helped that Patrick Henry kind of provoked Randolph during this time. And so it ended up, okay, well, Henry was completely against it. So the enemy of my enemy, Feldman actually wrote, quote, Randolph's switch in time reflected his character as much as his prevarication had before. Hmm. He always wanted desperately to be on the winning side of any question. Now that eight states had ratified without conditions, he was prepared to recommend that Virginia do the same. Naturally, we know how things went. Virginia ratified. Hmm. The Constitution went into effect. And so now... he was on the winning side. He was on the winning side. Yeah, I, I, I was... I was for it. I was for it all along. I was for it all along. Uh, You know, sign me up. Let's take the picture. I'm right here in the center. (laughs) (laughs) Just lacking a signature. Just lacking a signature. You know, my, I'm sorry. My pen ran out of ink. I'm I'm (laughs) sorry. I'm sorry. So now we've got the new government and we have a new president. This guy, George Washington, who Randolph knows fellow Virginian. And so as Washington was putting together his cabinet, and it took a a few months because basically for the cabinet to come together, Congress had to reorganize the executive branch and create the new departments, create the new positions. But once that was done, Washington turned to Edmund Randolph and asked him to be his first attorney general. So, you know, he loves being an attorney general. It's a good but role for him. Absolutely. He he has experience doing little and <laughs> also having <laughs> his own private law practice on the side. The thing about this, so even though, you know, Randolph was a pretty natural fit for the role, he didn't just get it based on his reputation and his previous experience. James Madison, Randolph's friend, had become a U.S. representative And he was a close advisor to Washington in the early days, to the point that he helped Washington write his inauguration speech. And then the House did a response to the inauguration speech, which Madison wrote. And then Washington had a response to the House's response, which Madison wrote. (laughs) So he's writing a a, a screenplay at this point. Exactly. He's just writing to himself, you know. These prominent documents, some of the first documents of the constitutional government, Madison is all in this and and has a large influence in the executive branch as well as the legislative. And so Randolph was aware of this. And so he wrote to his old friend, James Madison, I could really use some financial assistance. 
And at this point, and, and to be fair, his wife was having some health issues oh. and he knew that she was going to need treatment. He also, as many prominent Virginians did, had personal debts. And so he wrote to Madison, you know, you know how things are. Can you please put in a good word with me with Washington? I'd really like, you know, I know he's got this new cabinet coming together. Maybe I could get one of those positions. And so naturally, Madison put in the good word with Washington. Now, we should note, and as Feldman wrote, quote, Randolph was qualified for the job, but he got it because of Madison's friendship and support. Friends in high places. Friends in high places. It's good to know people in high places. And he's a Randolph, so he knows everybody. (laughs) Now, despite this, and I mean, this is a big favor. You know, he's getting a position, a national position, thanks to Madison. Despite that, Randolph would go on to oppose Madison's efforts to get (laughs) Virginia to ratify the Bill of Rights. Of course he did. So, uh, again, this is one of those big things that Madison is credited with, the Bill of Rights. He comes back to Virginia to get Virginia to ratify it, and Randolph's hedging his bets again. Yeah, he is. (laughs) And Feldman describes this, uh, you know, why Randolph was opposing these efforts. He described it as, quote, a very small, almost arbitrary point of difference. Again, just anything he can do to occupy that middle ground. Yep, to be a contrarian, just a little. Just have to have to be a contrarian. And Madison still continued, okay, you know, we're still friends. We can have this disagreement. I really wish you would support this. You know, I did just get you this new cushy job, but whatever. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, now he's the first Attorney General of the U.S. Now... I think it's important to note here for our listeners, you know, in the 21st century, we have an idea of what the attorney general is. The attorney Mm -hmm. general is the head of the Department of Justice, quasi-independent, also trying to avoid conflicts of interest. So (laughs) that that was not the attorney general position in 1789. So first of all- Did he continue his private practice? We will talk about that. So first of all, there was no Justice Department. The Mm. district attorneys actually, and and there were district attorneys, so federal attorneys out in the nation, but they actually reported through the State Department. So Randolph had no staff. It was just him. Mm. The attorney general position at the time was considered a part-time position. And thus, (laughs) it was pretty much expected that Yes, you would continue your private law practice while serving as attorney general. Wow. Yeah. You do see this. So in terms of his pay, the pay was actually half of what the other heads of the executive departments earned. It was only uh, 1500 a year. It was good money for the time, but it was still, it, it wasn't seen as like that full-time position like at state or 
the War Department or the Treasury. So again, this expectation, yeah, you're going to continue to have your, your private law practice. And really in the beginning, so the government was just getting started at the time. The federal judiciary was still coming together. So there really wasn't much for the attorney general to do officially at the beginning. Again, he ends up in another <laughs> position where there's not much to do. Yep. And at the time, you know, again, new government. So few cases rose to the level of the Supreme Court. And that was really one of the prominent roles of the attorney general was to represent the government before the Supreme Court. But since he really didn't have that much to do, he continued his private law practice. He actually moved his family to Philadelphia, uh, well, first to um, New York. And when the government settled in Philadelphia, he moved his family to Philadelphia and carried through some law practice there so that he could still be available if he was needed as attorney general, but also be able to make that money on the side because... Virginians always needed money because they had lots of debts. <laughs> well, I and mean, you can you can justify charging quite a lot if you're the attorney general of the United States, I imagine. People are like, I want that guy. Exactly. Did I mention my other job? <laughs> <laughs> but with this, Randolph was from Virginia, and so naturally he was also a slaveholder. And like with other Virginians, he brought some of the enslaved people from Virginia to Philadelphia. He learned that there was a problem. Pennsylvania had a manumission law, which said that after six months, enslaved individuals were automatically free. And so he learned about this when some of the enslaved individuals he brought came to him and said, we've been here six months. We're free. See ya. Go them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So in his role as attorney general, Randolph was an advisor for Washington, and he quickly realized, oh, the president brought enslaved individuals from Mount Vernon. I may need to let him know about this. And so Randolph advised Washington. Washington ended up coming up with this system of switching people out when that six-month time was coming. He'd find some excuse, you know, hey, I I need you to go and get this from Mount Vernon. I left it in my study. Can you just go back? Or, oh, I know you really want to see your family. I'm a nice guy. I'm going to let you go back to Mount Vernon to see your family. Hate that. Yeah. And so that was the way of getting around that six-month manumission law, and Randolph advised on that. So, Yeah, that sucks. There's that. And, and, and that's one thing that, you know, as we get to the scoring round, we'll talk more about, you know, Randolph's role in the slaveocracy. And, and I think that I wanted to make this point because this is something that I think we need to discuss as well. Absolutely. So Randolph would serve as kind of a legal reference, as well as just a general advisor to the president in his role as attorney general. And Washington had the practice. And and again, Washington was setting all of the precedents of the time. So in addition to kind of bringing his advisors together and talking in person about issues, he would sometimes ask them for written opinions. He wanted to really get a sense of where do you stand on this issue? Let's compare everybody's notes and figure out a plan forward. 
And so Randolph was included in this. Now, in terms of his ideology, Randolph was really more closely aligned with the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson. But increasingly, Randolph worked as more of a bridge over the divide between the Secretary of State and the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Again, he likes this middle ground. He doesn't want to commit you know, one way or the other too much, he wants to work as this bridge. And Mm -hmm. there was a need for a bridge because as our listeners know, and, and is talked about quite frequently with the Washington administration, Jefferson and Madison were very far apart in terms of their ideologies. And increasingly as time went on, their relations got even worse. They were attacking each other in cabinet meetings Hamilton would write essays against Jefferson. Jefferson brought in somebody to the State Department to basically give him a salary so that he could found a paper to attack Hamilton and the Federalist. So increasingly, there is this partisan divide in the nation, but also in the cabinet. And Washington was not big into that partisanship. He wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to be seen as president of all the people. And again, this idea of he didn't want his reputation to suffer. He wanted to be liked by everybody. To be above it all. Exactly. So that both sides still look at him as this ideal figure. Exactly. So in this sense, Washington and Randolph are very much on the same page. And so Washington would increasingly turn to Randolph as this kind of nonpartisan voice of reason. Okay. And so eventually the conflict gets to be too much. Jefferson finally says, you know what? I'm done. I'm tired of this. Every day is another battle. I'm retiring. So he decides to leave his post at the State Department in December 1793. And Washington looks around and he's like, well, Randolph, you've become a close advisor. How about you take over the State Department? So he does. Now, he actually does give up the attorney general position at this point to take the other post. But I know that's they probably rare had for... to make him. <laughs> exactly. No, no, we we need this office for somebody else. Come on. Come on. We're giving you something full time now. Just take it. We we promise you we're paying you twice what you were earning before. It's gonna be fine. So and and though you do wonder with the attorney general not having much to do could he have just stayed on as attorney general but he He would have tried (laughs) he would have tried so when he took the post of secretary of state at the time the united states was really starting to have conflicts with britain and the british At this point, the British government was not abiding by the terms of the Treaty of Paris, which had ended the Revolutionary War. The treaty had called on the British to evacuate forts in the Northwest Territory. But even 10 years after the treaty was signed and put into effect, British forces were still entrenched in the Northwest Territory. And westward expansion was one of those big issues for the Washington administration. They wanted to really be able to make this territory work and be able to have settlers go into this territory. But as long as the British forces were there, there was always this uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, American merchant ships were being threatened by British forces in the West Indies. And this was due to new orders from the British government to seize neutral vessels that were bound for France or its colonies in the Caribbean. So at the time, 
Great Britain and France were at war, and the United States was trying to maintain neutrality, trying to maintain this middle ground. Surprise, surprise that Washington and Randolph were all about that, but (laughs) (laughs) trying to maintain this middle ground and not get sucked into this war, but having our ships attacked by British forces, Washington was kind of having a problem with that. Can't hedge your bets when you're starting to suffer for it. Exactly. And people were really not happy about that. So they were turning to the government, do something. No, really, Mm -hmm. do something right now. And so Washington decides to send a special envoy to London to see what we could work out diplomatically. Now, the person he chose was the Supreme Court Chief Justice, John Jay. So again, we see at this time, and and Jay, of course, didn't give up his position. He was still the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, even while he was spending months in London. London. Yeah. Shows you just how little they had to do at that time. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the reasons why I bring this up, so... At this point, and and Randolph had been a close advisor for a while, but there was an even closer advisor to Mm. Washington in the cabinet, Alexander Hamilton. And as our our listeners heard on the episode with Hamilton, Hamilton was all about putting his finger in every pie. And so even (laughs) though he was still the Secretary of the Treasury, he was the one who recommended Jay for the post as a special envoy. Hamilton also was responsible for drafting Jay's instructions for the special mission, not the Secretary of State, mm. mm-hmm. which is, is rather odd. Now, I bring this up because it really shows one of the reasons why there was such conflict in the cabinet when Jefferson was still Secretary of State was that Hamilton kept trying to interfere in diplomatic affairs, and Jefferson was able to say, you know what? Stick to your business. I've got this. We see here Randolph isn't that strong. Randolph is going to be too neutral. (laughs) Exactly. He's he's too busy being neutral. And so he's like, okay, well, I I guess I'll accept this. Hey, you, you did my work for me. Thanks. Not to go too much into too much detail about Jay's mission, but Eventually, he did negotiate a treaty with Britain in uh, November 1794. The treaty, when it was announced, when the copy came back and people started finding out about it, it was roundly criticized, and Mm. especially by supporters of Jefferson, by these folks. I call them on the podcast, the Democratic Republicans. They went by numerous names, but Democratic Republicans, Mm -hmm. the non-federalist. So it was criticized in Congress, the public, people weren't happy about this. The Federalists were happy about it because ultimately this treaty helped the U.S. to stay out of war with Britain. But the Democratic Republicans attacked it for giving too much to the British. This was too conciliatory for them. Now, ultimately, and, and we do see successes from it. So with this treaty, with Jay's treaty... The British did evacuate their forces from the Northwest Territory. The treaty did settle some outstanding debts. And Mm -hmm. like I said, it avoided war, which at the time, the United States was not prepared to take on Great Britain. Now, the Senate would ratify the treaty. They did a slight revision to it, but they finally said, okay, you know, we need this treaty. Let's just go ahead and go for it. 
But then once the Senate ratified it, it came to Washington for a signature. (laughs) And there was pressure on Washington not to sign the treaty. And in part, you know, it was was due to problems that folks saw with the treaty. It was due to, well, can we sign it with this revision or do we need, does that mean we need to renegotiate? And so Washington, as was his standard practice, he turned to his cabinet and asked them for their opinions. Now, by the time of ratification, Alexander Hamilton had actually left his post as Secretary of the Treasury. Despite the fact that he was a private citizen, while Washington was asking his cabinet for their opinions, he also sent Hamilton a message and was like, hey, Hamilton, can you give me your opinion? I know you're not Secretary of the Treasury now, but I'd still like to hear what you have to say. Finger pie. (laughs) Exactly. Hamilton was all about telling him what he thought about (laughs) the treaty. Randolph had his doubts about the treaty. He really, he didn't even really support the special mission to begin with. And when the treaty came back, he was like, yeah, this really does give too much to, to Britain. But Washington ended up, after he got Hamilton's opinion, and Hamilton was all for the treaty, went ahead, signed it. So again, we see that Hamilton, even not being in office, still has more influence over the president than the Secretary of State. Right. So that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And really, during his tenure as Secretary of State, Randolph served in kind of this role, and and, uh, the word that comes to mind is house sitter. So (laughs) when Washington was, you know, traveling to Mount Vernon or just out of town for whatever reason, he would often turn to Randolph as kind of his point person back in Philadelphia. Hey, can you forward my mail? Tell me what's going on. If there's something that I need to do, if I need to come back early, if Washington was out of town and Martha Washington was still in Philadelphia, the Randolphs would go and keep her company. So he he really served in kind of this house sitter role for, right. for the president. <laughs> I'm not really so sure about taking your opinion on things, but, you know, can you water the plants and all that? <laughs> well, I think he, he it sounds like he trusted Randolph was going to be neutral. He wasn't going to try and make any bold moves while Washington was away. So it's perfectly fine to leave it in your care. It'll exactly. come back and it'll be the it'll be the exact same. Exactly. Hamilton and Jefferson may have. You know, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do some some business, and yeah, we'll sign that deal. Sure, Washington be okay with that. Randolph is the guy. I'm gonna yeah. stack your mail very neatly. I'm gonna make sure <laughs> that everything's taken care of. I'm not gonna do anything. I don't want to do anything. Have I mentioned? Have I mentioned that I am neutral? <laughs> <laughs> so. Randolph, and and as we've seen before, Randolph was not one to shy away from asking for favors and asking, Mm -hmm. well, there's a position available. Maybe, you know, have you thought about me for it? In early July 1795, Randolph actually wrote to Washington about the possibility of his being named to the Supreme Court. So here he is as Secretary of State, and he's wanting another position. Now, At this point, he was really suffering financially. Uh, He was Mm -hmm. having problems making ends meet, even with having this huge salary. But because the work was so involved at the State Department, and the State Department at the time was involved not just with diplomacy, but kind of managing some domestic affairs, 
there was a great deal of administration that went into play. So at this mm-hmm. point, Randolph couldn't have couldn't really devote time to his private law practice. So he really relied on that that salary and yeah. he was having trouble making ends meet. He also wanted to have a reliable income after he left the State Department. So he knew Washington was not going to be president forever. Washington, especially at this point, so 1795, Washington is really getting fed up with things. He is tired of the factionalism. He's tired of being criticized in the press by some folks. He's really got his eye on retirement. And so Randolph Mm -hmm. knows this. And He's not guaranteed that he's going to stay at the State Department if somebody else becomes president. Mm -hmm. So Randolph, the opportunist, we've got a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Have you thought about me for it? Now, Randolph wouldn't have to worry too much about that appointment or staying in his position at state much longer. Because around that time, a scandal broke. Ooh, yay. (laughs) So this is very early on in the government under the Constitution. You know, this just a few years after Washington took office. And so had a couple of minor scandals, but this one really became the scandal of the Washington administration, at least in terms of official business. So at this point, the French minister to the U.S. was a guy named Jean-Antoine Joseph Fauché. Now, like all diplomats at the time, Fauché would send back regular dispatches to his government, tell him about, you know, well, I had this meeting with so-and-so, here's some intelligence that I've learned, here's what's going on in the U.S., like trying to keep, keep them informed and also get some information back. You know, I need to know how do you want me to approach this, whatever. So it was just standard practice. You send back dispatches. Britain and France were still at war. And so Fauché, just like all diplomats, had to send his dispatches with somebody who was trusted. So naturally, it was a French ship that Mm -hmm. he was sending dispatches back to make sure that they didn't fall into the wrong hands. Well, the British Navy was a pretty big deal at the time. And so (laughs) they actually captured a French ship on the high seas. And this ship happened to be carrying some of his dispatches. And they weren't able to throw them overboard before the British got them. (laughs) So these dispatches included reports of conversations Fauché had had with Randolph. So Secretary of State Randolph. One in particular was quite interesting. Randolph approached Fauché during the Whiskey Rebellion and talked about his fears that civil war was nearing. So the Whiskey Rebellion... Just a a brief synopsis. It was basically folks in Western Pennsylvania who were upset about a tax on whiskey. And they started having some armed insurrection. And so it was during that time Randolph goes to the French minister and says, you know, I'm I'm really worried. Things are not looking good. Things are really unstable. And I think sometimes we don't recognize just how through perception that that people really did see the nation as being fragile. They thought it could fall apart yeah. at any time. Mm-hmm. And so he goes, you know, the secretary of state goes to the French minister, says he's kind of concerned. And he asked Fauché for money to counter British efforts to exert influence in the oh. whiskey rebellion. And at the time, the European powers were kind of helping, you know, yeah, okay, you're kind of upset at the U.S. government. 
yeah, we may give you some money to to help in your efforts because they wanted the U.S. to be unstable so that they had interest in North America. And if the U.S. was unstable, that meant they could exert more influence and gain more for themselves. So, you know, it wasn't completely out of the question that the British may try and use these things to help their interest in North America. But oh, absolutely. We have the Secretary of State asking for money from mm -hmm. a foreign diplomat. Now, over the years, folks have examined the the dispatches, and though there's not really, you know, it, it it's not completely clear that he's asking for this money for himself. It's still, and, and just the fact that he was so candid with the French minister to the U.S., there's not kind of a smoking gun that, you know, he's clearly treasonous. He's clearly doing this. We can't go that far. But right. there was enough there there that this could be interpreted in certain ways. You know, this is this is suspicious. There's something rotten going on here. Especially for someone who is generally and notoriously nonpartisan. This is very much not that way. Exactly. And you can see how this could be interpreted in such a way to make one question Randolph's honor and trustworthiness. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the British have the dispatches, send them to the British minister to the U.S. at the time in Philadelphia, and he gets the secretary of the treasury at the time, Oliver Walcott, to the side and says, hey, I've got something for you. So <laughs> he hands the dispatches to Walcott. Walcott pulls in the secretary of war, Timothy Pickering. They look him over and they're like, yeah, we need to do something about this. So mm -hmm. at, at that point, President Washington was back in Mount Vernon. And so Pickering writes him a letter. And it's kind of vague, but basically saying, we need you to get back now as soon as possible. And so he does. Your he house sitter has overturned all the plants. <laughs> you, you may want to check on your house right now. <laughs> Come on. And so he comes back. They show him the dispatches. And Washington takes some time to kind of look him through. He actually waits a week before confronting Randolph. But in, in that week, we start to get a sense of, you know, he's not acting towards Randolph kind of the same way. The week comes and he finally calls Randolph to his office. And Randolph walks in to the president's office and hears Washington and Pickering and Walcott. They're all kind of waiting for him. He's like, okay, what's going on? I was just coming to meet with the president. Mm -hmm. They start to confront him. You know, we have these dispatches. What is going on? Explain yourself. And Randolph was kind of shocked. He was taken off guard. Yeah. He had trouble defending himself on the spot. And so Washington is like, look, I'm going to need you to explain this. Prepare a defense. Get it to me as soon as possible. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. We're done here. And so you better get your story straight. Exactly. Get your story straight. So Randolph, you know, leaves and he realizes this is bad. So to go ahead and try and avoid anybody saying anything more about him, he goes ahead and gets the folks at the State Department to lock up his office. He's like, do not let me in. 
everything that's in there is in there. You know, you can say you've got the key. I don't have access to it. Hmm. So he goes home and he kind of has a think and he's like, you know what? Forget this. I'm not explaining myself. I'm resigning. So he writes out his letter of resignation, sends it to Washington. And that is how Edmund Randolph leaves his post as Secretary of State. In such a characteristic way, because it is the ultimate hedged bet. This could go really bad for me, so I'm going to take the upper hand away from them, suckers. <laughs> I'm done. Here you go. You can figure out, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to say I'm done. Everything's good. So, yes, it is very characteristic for Randolph to just say, you know what, I'm not fighting this battle. Mm-hmm. But... He does have to address it, you know, of course. you know, because it, it came very suddenly. And so folks are asking, well, what just happened? Because they don't necessarily know about the dispatches, the general mm. public or other folks in government. It's really being kept hush hush for the time being. And so Randolph has to provide some kind of explanation. And so he starts to get his ducks in a row. He starts to get things together and get his story straight. So he actually works to get a written statement from Fauché. Now, Fauché at this point was leaving his post as French minister to U.S. He's basically had everything booked. He was ready to go back to France. And Randolph is literally chasing him down to try <laughs> and get this written statement from him saying that there was nothing untoward. He 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 was fine. And so he, he was able to, to get it, but it, it's this, you know, it, it really is him running to get to <laughs> Fauché. Get <laughs> I, I need that paper. I need that paper. Don't stop that ship. <laughs> and so he, he tries to get as much documentation as he can. Well, he also has to get a sense of, we kind of talked about it, but we didn't talk about the details of when Washington learned about this, what he actually knew, which dispatches Mm -hmm. he had seen. He didn't know those details. And so he writes to Washington, hey, can you give me a little more information about this? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And and so in the process and 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 Washington, you know, obliges. He he's like, Well, I don't really have anything to hide. So yeah, I'll tell you how I learned about it. Here's the dispatches that I read. And so he came to find out that Washington hadn't seen all the dispatches. And from his reply, Randolph starts to get a sense. It's like, so Pickering and Walcott were all involved in this. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like, you know, they were really talking to him. And so Pickering and Walcott were both arch federalists. They were very much on the federalist camp. Randolph, Mm -hmm. as we said, you know, he leaned more towards the Jefferson camp. And so mm-hmm. Randolph starts to get a sense. They were kind of setting me up. They yeah. wanted me out. And they use this as their opportunity to turn Washington against him. Mm-hmm. And also at the time, this was also with the Jay Treaty and, and Washington's deliberations about whether to sign or not. And Washington was initially kind of hesitant and was more in Randolph's camp. And then all of a sudden, he's like, no, I'm signing this treaty around Mm. the same time that Pickering and Walcott were revealing the dispatches and talking with Washington about this guy. (laughs) 
And so Randolph's like, there is something fishy going on with them. So he goes to the State Department, which at this point, Timothy Pickering had moved over from the War Department, and he was now the third Secretary of State. Ah, so he took over his position. Exactly. And so Mm. Randolph goes to the State Department, and he's like, you know, I want these documents. I know they're in your files because I put them there. So (laughs) I know these documents are there. Can you get them to me so that way I can use them to build my defense? He got everything that he wanted except for one letter. And it was what he saw as kind of a key letter. And so Randolph's like, well, if Pickering's not going to give it to me, I'll go over his head. So he writes to Washington. The thing is, and with George Washington, and you would think that Edmund Randolph is as aligned as they were in, in their viewpoints that he would realize this wasn't a really good idea. You don't call Washington out in public. No, that would not be smart. So Randolph didn't wait for Washington's response before he had his letter to Washington printed in the Philadelphia Gazette asking for this letter. So basically he's putting Washington on the spot. You either give me this letter or people are going to start thinking that something's fishy going on with you. Ooh, that's a gamble. Yeah, Washington wasn't too happy about that. He wrote him back a terse letter saying that Randolph could print whatever letter he wanted. I have nothing to hide. And that was the end of their correspondence and their friendship. Oh, so yeah, Randolph is not doing so well at the the neutral ground anymore. (laughs) He's starting to make some enemies. (laughs) And he should have stayed that way because now that he's not hedging his bets, he's losing. Exactly. And so, you know, he keeps on with his defense. And so finally, on December 20th, 1795, Randolph's vindication was published. So it was this lengthy pamphlet going through, well, here's what happened. Here's what they're saying. Here's my point of view. I'm trying to defend his honor. Right. It really didn't do much. Didn't stick. The folks who believed him before believed him after. The folks who didn't. Or like, mm-hmm. well, this is just a desperate attempt to try and do something to mm-hmm. defend his name. It really didn't change anybody's mind. And in the process, he lost Washington. Washington, yeah. Yeah. Not good. And especially when you're from Virginia. So finally, Randolph is done defending himself. And he returns to Virginia. He gets back into his legal practice. At this point, his name is pretty disgraced. He's not going to get back into public office. His private practice is probably not doing amazing either. Probably not. Although he does get one very high profile client in 1807. You may have heard of a guy named Aaron Burr. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. So Aaron Burr at this point, and, and I'm getting to that point in the the narrative of presidencies where we talk about the Burr conspiracy. Burr had this conspiracy going on to either break away the Western part of the U S and start a new nation and, or go and invade Mexico and, or just break off new Orleans. Who knows? He, he was up for anything, just some kind of conspiracy. Let's, let's just take over something. Gosh, could you imagine New Orleans as its own entire separate place? Be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it it already kind of is, but 
even more yeah. so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Burr's conspiracy ended up falling apart. The federal government took Aaron Burr into custody and tried him in Richmond. And so Richmond, Virginia, Virginia, Edmund Randolph's there. He's a prominent lawyer. And so Aaron Burr gets him as one of his attorneys. Now, Randolph didn't really play a large role in, in the trial. There were really other defense attorneys that, that played more of a prominent role, but he was still there and still able to kind of offer that Randolph gravitas, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. little was remaining, but you know, the Randolph name was still pretty prominent in Virginia. And so mm-hmm. here he's, he's part of Burr's defense and Burr is ultimately exonerated. And so we can't really give Randolph too much credit for that, but he did play a role. So that's important to know. Minor success. Minor success. You know, but that's really the last big thing that Edmund Randolph does. Mm. His, his wife, Elizabeth, died in early March 1810, and Randolph was devastated. So his wife, they had been through so much together. And now she's gone. And so his last few years, he really just starts to go on this downward spiral. His his health starts failing. He lived his last years as a guest of a friend in Clark County, Virginia. Hmm. He ended up suffering from paralysis and he died on September 12th, 1813. He was buried at the cemetery of an Episcopal church near Millwood, Virginia. So Mm. that was the spiraling end of (laughs) Edmund Randolph. From such a meteoric rise in so many positions to just caving Mm. through at the end. When he gambled, he finally lost. Exactly. Never never pulled back out and, and just, and there are other members of the Randolph clan so his cousins who were more prominent but edmund randolph would never again after his disgraceful exit from the state department he would never again get into the halls of power despite his randolph name (laughs) so with that that is the life and career of edmund randolph it was a journey it was a journey and now comes the time to talk about this journey so Mm As our, our listeners know, we have a few categories that we try and frame this discussion around. And with this, we will be applying some scoring. And as you mentioned, Bree, the scoring can sometimes be a, a bit arbitrary. It, it comes from our points of view. But I think <laughs> that we have a good bit to discuss about him, starting with Definitely. the round that we call the whole picture. Now, mm. in this round, we look at the overall career and character of this cabinet member and each of us can award up to 10 points. So, okay. Bree, if you want to start us off, what are your thoughts about Edmund Randolph? Well, I think he's a really interesting sort of whole of contradictions in itself because generally speaking, he is quite a perfect fit for someone like Washington who wants a neutral, nonpartisan government. And in playing both sides and never quite attaching himself to any particular faction there is there is an efficacy about it and i find myself wondering sort of in the alternative history space what would have happened if there wasn't a person like him to back washington and we had that jefferson and the hamilton rivalry escalate itself Mm -hmm. would we 
have got would America have gotten anywhere the way that it did? And there's also something to be argued for refusing to sign the Constitution or arguing against the Bill of Rights to ensure that these things are challenged. Because mm-hmm. being challenged is part, at least at this point, very, very fundamental to the way that America sets itself up, at least from my perspective. So I think there's something to be said that he was the perfect man for the perfect role at the perfect time, but that that didn't really work out for him. No. (laughs) I mean, amusingly, I want to hedge my bets and I'm kind of heading somewhere (laughs) around a five because it is kind of, it, it is so neutral that you could argue one way or the other. Absolutely. And, and I think, you get something key here because so much of that early time, that early part in the Republic's history depended on not going to the extremes and mm-hmm. finding compromise and finding that middle ground. And the fact that Randolph occupied that and also, I think, helped to provide Washington with that mm-hmm. space. You know, he he helped to serve in that role in Washington's cabinet. As a trusted advisor, he was able to help Washington navigate between these two strong personalities and strong factions to find a path mm-hmm. forward that would, even if it didn't please everybody, it still managed to move things forward. And so I think that was a key role and it was very much needed. And there is that time that Washington really relied on him for that. In terms of his overall career, you really see this person that's rising to prominence and gets to positions of power, but when he's in them, he really doesn't do much. He mm-hmm. he plays a role, but it's always it's not as prominent as other folks at the time mm-hmm. were playing. He didn't he didn't really exert as much influence personally, but that middle ground, that middle place and leaving room for that. I think that was his influence in this. Yeah, if I was if I was to rate him purely on his position as an advisor to Washington, I would probably score him higher because as a new newly developed country which is fragile and people recognized it as fragile, would Washington have been able to maintain his neutrality if he was the only one? Mm-hmm. That would give him I think probably a very good score but because this is the whole picture mm-hmm. i find myself knocking it down a bit so yeah with with your perspective on it influencing me as well i feel very comfortable with my five and i think i'm going to for this one i think i'm going to give him a four just because again you know in terms of his career he he does rise to these prominent roles he he serves as the governor of virginia the first state attorney general he serves mm-hmm. in the continental congress he serves in the constitutional convention he serves as the first attorney general the second secretary of state i mean it's it's a great career mhm but what he does with it it's it's not as impactful as i think other people who ascend it to those roles and achieve those roles. I, yeah. I don't think he made kind of the, the 
the same impact as they did. So with that, with your five and my four, that gives him a nine for the whole picture. But now we can really focus in on his his position in the cabinet with our next category, which is the go-getter. This mm. round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And like with the previous round, we can score up to 10 points. Ooh, okay. So, well, this is, and this is where I was thinking with that too, because it, it is sort of a hypothetical argument that I'm falling back on because we don't actually know if he... Mm wasn't there we don't know what would happen but there's something to be said that holding a neutral line is very very difficult Mm -hmm. it is very hard not to be swayed especially by such large personalities as someone like jefferson or someone like hamilton and they are by far not the only ones who wanted washington's ear or felt the need to have an influence over the president so There don't seem, at least from my understanding of American history at this time, there don't seem to be a lot of neutral people like Randolph. Mm -hmm. And by giving Washington that space, there is a potential that that was really valuable. I don't know how real that potential is. What do you think? I think that there was, I think that, and like we were discussing earlier, I think that this was his impact, being able mm-hmm. to provide that neutral ground, being able to kind of see the perspectives and for a good period of time. And, and Washington kind of went through iterations of people who were the more prominent influences on him. And there mm-hmm. was a time when Jefferson and Hamilton were really in conflict and it was very heated. Randolph did serve at this time as kind of Washington's trusted advisor. He mm-hmm. he was the guy that Washington could go to and just kind of get away from that conflict. And what do we do to really move forward the nation, move mm-hmm. forward the agenda of the administration? And I think that was needed for Washington. And especially Washington, at the beginning of the second term, he's got his two of his cabinet members who can't stand each other and who are constantly arguing. We've got the conflict with Great Britain and France threatening to pull the U.S. in, threatening everything that Washington had been building. You see more factionalism in general in the U.S., and Washington's name is even starting to get attacked in the press. And he was able to turn to Randolph and say, is it just me or is this what's going on here? This isn't what we signed up for. I I think that it was a comfort to have Randolph, somebody that he could relate to, a fellow Virginian, somebody that he had known for a long time. I think that that helped get Washington through some of those turbulent times and to plot out more of a middle ground. And we see Mm -hmm. when Randolph starts to lose influence that's when we start to see Washington turning increasingly to Hamilton and to the Federalist and getting a little more partisan, mm. getting away from how how he had envisioned the presidency. So I think in terms of that, I think that really is Randolph's influence in this. Mm. And I think it was a, a, an important role in the cabinet for the time. He's he's a buffer. He's padding, but he's really, really good padding. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of inspired to give him like a seven. And I think I'm going to go 
a little lower. I think I'm going to go for a five. And it's mainly because, you know, thinking in terms of context of some of the other cabinet members that played more prominent roles in really, really influencing the agenda. And especially Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, I've got to take off a couple of points just because when he became secretary of state, he could have played yeah. a prominent role and he kind of deferred to Hamilton and Hamilton used that influence. He used his ability to be able to start interfering and, and taking control of the agenda. Another cabinet member, another person may have said, you know what, Hamilton, stay in your lane. I got this. Randolph true. didn't. He he was neutral Randolph. So <laughs> that's he, true. He did what Randolph did. So <laughs> So with your seven and my five, that gives him 12. So he is up to 21 points right now. But now in the next category, (laughs) we can take away some points because this is the hot seat round. This Mm -hmm. round discusses any disgraceful behavior or of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this disgrace doesn't have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. But I think that there are some points of his tenure that we can talk about with this category. And I think to start out, you know, we get to the issue of slavery. And I actually had a listener who reached out to me to talk about, you know, what does this mean in terms of this round? And I don't think we can assign a a numerical value to really reflect yeah. just how horrific slavery was in America mm-hmm. and and the awful impact that it had on so many people and, and continues to have an impact on the nation to this day that said you know we are assigning a number in mm-hmm. this category and slavery has to be a part of that randolph yeah. was a slaveholder his family came to prominence because of slavery that that was what helped the Randolphs get their wealth. And so I think that we do need to take that into consideration. We mm-hmm. also have, in terms of Randolph, this advice that he gave to Washington about, oh, well, here's how yeah. you can keep your keep people enslaved and get around the legalities. I think that that is disgraceful. And there are some people at the time, who would have seen as disgraceful, there were others who wouldn't have. They would have seen that as, oh, well, he's just doing his job. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But speaking from a 21st century context, we can't say that. Yeah. that it's disgraceful. Absolutely. There, it's just gross all the way around. Yeah. And that's the and that's the thing about these these tough topics. And and this is something we obviously have considered too with our show, because we are going to be talking about things that are very gruesome and especially with what's coming out now about the modern church there is no number you can assign for something like that that doesn't trivialize what it is because we acknowledge that that thing in this case slavery is beyond comprehension of awful there there's no way around that but then you have this piece where he is advising someone how best manipulate that system more and so that is worse so whatever we associate as a as a kind of standard value that we place on acknowledging the atrocity of slavery that has to then go beyond that because mm-hmm. you're then manipulating the system to make it worse for these people and so yeah i think that i i'm more 
bothered by the advising Washington on how to manipulate the system than I am about the French scandal. Yes. So. Well, and and that's the thing, like with Randolph. So again, this was a major scandal. It was it was a major political scandal, but was it really? You know. Yeah. When we look at it, it really doesn't. There are certain figures, and and James Wilkinson is one that listeners of the podcast will know. We've been talking about the scandal, the the scandalous James Wilkinson for a while, who was a secret agent for the Spanish, who was involved in the Burr conspiracy, who was willing to sell his loyalty for how much gold do you have? You know, Mm -hmm. that was a clear case of treason that this is somebody who is really treasonous randolph you really don't it, it it just seems like he was more yeah he probably shouldn't have been as forthright with the french minister he probably should have maintained some distance probably shouldn't have asked for money even though it, it sounds like it was more for oh well we may need some financial assistance to combat the british trying to come in and exert influence it really isn't a big scandal. It was used to mm-hmm. attack him. It was used to kind of get him out of that position. And it, it was used for political effect. But in terms of what he actually did, it it really isn't much of anything. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I think if it had been anyone else who had been the subject of these dispatches, it probably wouldn't have been as shocking because more than anything, it seems more like of a betrayal of himself and the way that he was presenting himself and the role he played in government. So it was more that it went against his nonpartisan nature and that it seemed to have more motivation behind it besides being that bridge person that it actually shocks us. Exactly. And with other people in that position, they likely would have defended themselves and said, mm-hmm. you know, hold mm-hmm. on, let me tell you what's really going on here. But Randolph kind yeah. of deferred. I'm I'm just getting out of here. I'm fine. You know, don't don't want to rock the boat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it, I, I don't think he really gets many points there. I think that we do potentially have a conversation about his whole thing with Madison. And, you know, here's this guy who, yeah, can you put in a good word? Can you get me an office? And then he turns around and, you know, I'm going to throw you under the bus for this thing that you really say is important. And, you know, when we talk about Madison, we'll, of course, talk about the Bill of Rights. But Madison Mm -hmm. basically promised the Bill of Rights to his constituents, if this was a big thing for him. And he just doesn't seem to have that that same sense of, you know, you help me, now I'm going to help you. He really comes across at times as very opportunistic. Oh, definitely. But we could also argue that there may, are we arguing for the morality of political loyalty based on favors? Because then that gets really challenging. Mm -hmm. Because yes, it it seems like being an ungrateful friend or a bad friend and and, and not supporting the people who support you. And we can argue that that makes you a less than ideal character. But he didn't let the favors that he did receive get in the way of political neutrality Mm -hmm. so there might be something to be said for that 
I don't know. I'm I'm this is broaching into much larger <laughs> ideals than that, but well, and again, it's one of those things that, you know, with the the mythos of the founding fathers, yes. folks don't like to think <laughs> of, oh, well, they're doing these political dealings. No, they were doing the political dealings. And, and you did have these instances where folks were, you know, can you get me this office? Can you get, you know, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right. So, but to your point, the fact that he he didn't use that and, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of went his own way, is that better? Yeah. Yeah. We can criticize it as a personality trait, less so as a political trait. So it, mm. it's like, it's hard where it, it fits into this this round. So how do you feel about where you're going to score him? I think, and, and again, this is trying to envision, you know, thinking long scale, long term in terms of cabinet members, there are some really scandalous cabinet members. Mm-hmm. Randolph isn't quite so scandalous, but we really do the the whole advice to Washington and the mm-hmm. fact that he was very much involved in the slaveocracy, in enslaving individuals. I think that we do have to take that into account. And and like you said, you know, that that advice to circumvent the laws of Pennsylvania, yeah. that bumps him up even more. And so for me, right now I'm leaning towards a five. Okay. So, so my instincts are right. Cause like the French dispatch scandal gives him like a one in my book, everything else. I want to give him a six and I want to do everything else is for his involvement in slavery and the manipulation of the manumission law. So, and so with that, that becomes a negative 11. So that gets him (laughs) back down to 10 points. And now we get to a few more places where we can where he may pick up some points so we with this we award points for the tenure of office and this is the entire time that the cabinet member served in a full-time capacity so at some points they would have cabinet members that would serve as acting secretary we don't count that we count it when they are really in the office Now, one thing about this and what comes up with Randolph is that he served in two offices. So these actually did overlap just a little bit. He did have a a few days where he was both Secretary of State and Attorney General. Of course he did because it's Randolph. (laughs) So he was Attorney General from September 26, 1789 to January 26, 1794. And he was Secretary of State from January 2nd, 1794 to September 20th, 1795. And so rounding, that is that will get him six points for just about six years of service. Now, do we give him full points for the Attorney General role, considering that you said it was pretty much a part-time role? He we gets do, full credit? We do, because he wasn't acting Attorney General. He was fully the attorney general. So he does get credit for that. He also gets credit in one of our rounds that this is the first cabinet member that will actually get a point here. So we do award a bonus point for cabinet members who served in more than one cabinet post. So Mm -hmm. since he did that, he gets another point, but he does not get a point for our other bonus rounds, which are if he served in more than one administration, he only served in Washington's administration. So he doesn't get a point there. And he did not become president. 
nowhere <laughs> close. I don't know that Randolph could have dealt with being president and actually no. having to make a decision on things and not walk the middle ground. And only do one thing at a time? Never. <laughs> no. Never. No. <laughs> so with that, we have Edmund Randolph at 17 points total. And we have a question to ask with this cabinet member. We have to ask ourselves with all we've talked about, with all we've shared with his life and career, Bree, do you think that Edmund Randolph is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? You know... I, I've been fascinated this whole time that we've been talking about him. And I, I do think that this is very interesting. And I think his role is in some ways overstated and in some ways understated, because like we said, he does have an impact. And that is an important impact in the position that he, he plays for Washington in particular. But neutrality is not enough of an impact, I think. So... As much as it pains me to do it, I, I may have to be a nay here. I think I am joining you in that nay. Like you said, he played a role. And mm-hmm. I think that there was a value to his role. But ultimately, his impact, it was really more about what other people were doing and not so much about what he was doing because he was maintaining that neutral ground. He didn't want to stick his head out. And when he finally did, it was a disaster when he finally (laughs) (laughs) actually took a a stand, it ended his career. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to say, no, he does not deserve a seat at the table. So sorry, Edmund Randolph, you're going to have to leave the room. (laughs) (laughs) Go back to your private practice. (laughs) Go back to your private practice. Find a few more public offices to to take up. Collect your titles. Collect your titles of positions that you really don't have to do much with. So Yeah. But with that, we are at the end of our episode. And Bree, I cannot thank you enough for being here and for listening to the life and career of Edmund Randolph. Um, He is not someone who people know a great deal about, but as you've seen, and and I think you acknowledge, you know, he, he is somebody that really, we can learn a great deal about the Washington administration about that time by studying his life and career. So I thank well, you thank for you being so here. Much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I think it's been my distinct pleasure and I've really enjoyed I love the figures that people don't know a lot about. So this was perfect. Those are always, you know, the, the fun folks to really talk about when <laughs> folks don't know much about them to be able to share that. So and, and I know you've had a number of obscure <laughs> popes that... <laughs> Oh, gosh, they're really my favorite when they come out of absolutely nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) And for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And please, now that you're done with this episode, go and check out Pontifex if you haven't already. Believe me, you will want to check out Pontifex and learn (laughs) about all the popes, even the obscure ones, even the the ones who didn't stick around for very long. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> Bree and Fry cover all of them. So check it out wherever fine podcasts are found. And thank you so much for listening. 
Special thanks to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for his work on this episode. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.